Okay, let's get together and let's open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 21. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 38. Luke 21, 5 to 38. It's a long passage, and I need to uh, just prepare you. The, the teaching today is going to be different from most of our teachings. Uh, a lot of times, it's a, as a burden of the Lord, it's a message that I preach with a significant amount of application. This morning, I'm just going to try to explain mostly. I take 95% of our time just to explain what this is talking about. So it'll be teaching more than preaching. There'll be less application because it's a, uh, it's a very controversial passage and people understand it in different ways. So I'm going to do my best to try, to try to lay some groundwork for you guys today. Okay, let's first pray and then we'll read the text. Lord, we ask that you would come, that you would bless your word today as we open it. Oh God, pour out your spirit upon this congregation, Lord. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth, O Lord. This is a difficult passage. It's a controversial one, and we just ask for light, that we would be Bereans, Lord, that you'd give us solid principles of biblical interpretation, that we might not miss your will and your intention. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's go ahead and read the text. Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 5. And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, as for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another, which will not be torn down. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See to it that you are not misled, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes, and in various places plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my namesake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And some of you, no, and you, pardon me, will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city." Because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant, and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress upon the land, and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword, and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs and sun, and moon and stars. And on the earth, dismay among nations, and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men, fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Behold, the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, 
but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell in the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now during the day he was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. This is what has been traditionally been called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus delivered it while he was on the Mount of Olives. We have the same basic material in Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, and Luke chapter 21. These are parallel passages to one another. And it's controversial only in that Christians have understood what Jesus was predicting in various and different ways. There are those who believe that Jesus is talking about the end of the world, and especially the last seven years of the history of the world, and they call that the Great Tribulation. There are those that believe Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And then there are those who believe somehow he's talking about both at the same time. So we're going to do our best to try to work through this passage. It's not an easy one. I, I'll tell you, it's one, it's one of those passages that can drive interpreters crazy and expositors as they, as they dig in and try to understand it because it's not so easy to come to the conclusion of what the chapter is talking about. Now, remember the context. Jesus has just been exposing the corruption of the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, in verses 45 to 47. And then he shows us an example of someone that I believe was a victim of the corruption of those religious leaders, this poor widow who was taught that she could purchase salvation if she would just give alms there in the temple. And so she gave her last two coins. Um, it's a different way of looking at that, but I just encourage you to, to consider that, whether that might be the, um, the intention of the Holy Spirit in giving us that particular little story. It, it meets with the context Verse 45 to 47 is judgment upon the religious leaders. Verses 5 to 38 is judgment upon the nation of Israel. Well, then we have this little vignette in between of a person, and I believe it, Jesus is talking about this person that we ought to have pity upon because she's the victim of a corrupt apostate religious system that's telling her she can purchase salvation by almsgiving. But that brings us to um, verses 5 to 38. And in verse 5, it says, while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts. This was Herod's temple. It was the second Jewish temple. The first Jewish temple was the one that Solomon built. Well, later on, after the Jews were brought back from exile in Babylon, they constructed the temple again. But here we are hundreds of years later, and King Herod is wanting to reconstruct or to add more to this particular temple. He has this thing where he wants to be remembered for generations and generations. And so he puts all of his effort and taxes, tax money into building these monuments and temples that he will be remembered for long after he's gone. Now, the temple had already been in building 49 years. And it's going to be continually built for 30 more years. So it, it probably came to its completion around 60 A.D. or so. There was 10 years where that beautiful temple stood, and then in 70 A.D. it was demolished and destroyed by the Romans. Now, it was a beautiful, majestic, breathtaking work of humankind. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world when you looked at that temple. Uh, Josephus, a contemporary historian of that day, he writes this, the whole of the outer works of the temple was in the highest degree worthy of admiration. It was completely covered with gold plates, which when the sun was shining on them glittered so dazzlingly that they blinded the eyes of the beholders, not less than when one gazed at the sun itself. And on the other sides, where there was no gold, the blocks of marble were of such pure white that to the strangers who had never previously seen them from a distance, they looked like a mountain of snow. And then the rabbi said this, He who has not seen the temple in its full construction has never seen a glorious building in his life. 
Some of the stones that were used in the construction of that temple were between 12 feet and 60 feet in length. That would mean that some of them weighed over 100 tons. Now, can you imagine in that day how you would transport a a stone that weighed 100 tons? I don't know how they did it, but they had to have done it somehow. They were able to move these stones into place, and some of the parts of that temple were 90 feet high, which would mean that it was the height of a nine-story building. It, It was amazing when you consider what they were actually able to construct without power tools and cranes and things that we just take for granted today. And when the disciples were just gushing over the majesty and the breathtaking splendor of this temple, Jesus says, as for the things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. Now, what do you think was going through their minds when Jesus told them that? I think they, they were astonished. I think what he just said was shocking. They, they couldn't believe. What? That? That temple's going to be demolished and torn down? That'd be like somebody saying in 1999, in just a few years, the World Trade Centers are going to be demolished and be no more. And people say, no, you're crazy. You're absolutely crazy. There's no way. How, how could the World Trade Centers be demolished and come to an end? Impossible. Well, that was kind of the situation here. They were astonished. It was unbelievable what Jesus was about to say to them. Now, we're going to work our way through Jesus's. Well, first, there's going to be two questions that the disciples have for Jesus. And then we're going to see the answers that Jesus gives to those two questions. And then we're going to look at the events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. And then we're going to look at the destruction of Jerusalem itself. So those four major issues. First of all, let's look at two questions that the disciples gave to Jesus. Verse 7 says, They questioned him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, Mark 13, verses 1 and 3, give us a little bit of help here. If you just read Luke 21, you would get the impression that Jesus was answering the disciples in the temple, but he's not. In Mark 13, verse 1, it says, As he, Jesus, was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And verse 3 says, As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. So do you get the situation? They say, what wonderful stones. He says, all of them are going to be torn down. Then they leave the temple. They go up to a nearby mountain, the Mount of Olives. They sit down and four disciples come to Jesus, Peter, James, Andrew, and John. And they privately ask this question. Actually, there's two questions. When will these things happen is number one. And what will be the sign that these things are going to soon take place? Number two. Those are two separate and distinct questions. When will these things happen, is the first question. What will be the sign that it's imminent, that it's just about to happen? Now, notice that the two questions that they ask Jesus have to do with the destruction of the temple and the stones being torn down from the temple. They're not asking Jesus when the end of the world will be. Did you notice that? They didn't say, Jesus, when will the end of the world be? They said, when will these things be? Well, what things? What he had just said. Not one stone will be standing upon another and all will be torn down. They're asking him when that is going to be and what the sign will be when that's about to happen. Okay? Now, if you read Matthew's gospel, it's more confusing because in Matthew's gospel, he says, the disciples ask him this question. When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And so that sounds like you've got, the question is about the destruction of the temple and the second coming of Christ. And that's what makes so much confusion when we try to interpret the Olivet Discourse. Without going into a lot of detail, it could take a long time to deal with Matthew 24, I think it's verse 3. Let me just say this, Matthew 24, when Matthew records the sayings of Jesus, he he puts together certain kinds of material. 
And in Matthew 24, G, uh, Matthew has put together future sayings of Jesus, predictions that Jesus made. He put together material from Luke 17 and Luke 21. Luke 21 is about the destruction of Jerusalem. Luke 17 is about the second coming of Christ. Matthew puts it both together in Matthew chapter 24, and then it appears that he modifies the question to make it broad enough to include both of those different uh, situations, both the destruction of Jerusalem and the second coming of Christ. But in Mark and Luke, we don't have that question. All they say is, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that it's about to happen? Matthew seems to modify it to include more than just the destruction of Jerusalem, but also the second coming. I hope I haven't lost you with all of that. If I have, I'll, I'll try to clear it up in our Q&A time at the end, okay? All right. Now let's look at Jesus' answers to these two questions. The first question, when will these things happen? I believe he answers that in verse 31 and 32. He says there, So you also, when you see these things happening... They said, when shall these things happen? Jesus answers, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. First question, when will the stones be torn down from the temple? Jesus answer, in the generation that's now alive. That's when it will happen. In other words, there will be people that are alive now that will be still alive to see the fulfillment of what I've just predicted. Not everybody's going to die off from this generation before my prediction takes place. Okay? So that's his answer. Now, Jesus isn't predicting that, that this is going to happen hundreds of years from now or thousands of years from his day. He's predicting that it will happen within a generation. I went through the Gospel of Luke and searched for the phrase, this generation. It comes up eight times before it occurs here in Luke 21-32. Guess how many times that phrase, this generation, refers to the generation that was alive when Jesus was speaking? How many times would you say? Eight. <laughs> eight out of eight. Every single time Jesus uses the phrase, this generation, he's talking about the generation that is alive that he's speaking to. He's not talking about a future generation. He's talking about the generation that is alive when he's talking. Now, of course, those who believe that Jesus here is talking about the end of the world have to do something with verse 32 because it doesn't make any sense that the end of the world was going to occur within Jesus' generation, within 40 years or so. The end of the world didn't come, the world didn't come to an end within 40 years, right? It's still going on. And so they have to come up with a different understanding of the phrase, this generation. And there's basically two primary ways that people have done that. The Greek word for generation is genea. In the King James Version, 33 out of 37 times it means generation. There's four other, pos four other verses where it has a different uh, rendering. Sometimes it means age. Sometimes it means time. It is never in the New Testament translated as race in the King James Version. But it is possible that that word genea for generation can be translated race. And so some people say, oh, what Jesus was saying is that this race will not pass away until all these things take place. And what they mean by that is the Jewish race will not pass away until Jesus comes back. And that's how they sort of get around the plain meaning, which seems to be that the generation he was talking to would not pass away before all these things took place. Of course, the problem there is that those interpreters are believing that Jesus is talking about the end of the world. And of course, if he's talking about the end of the world, then verse 32 is a problem because it didn't happen within Jesus' generation. But if Jesus wasn't talking about the end of the world, if he was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, there's no problem at all. Because actually, this, the destruction of Jerusalem took place in about 40 years from the time Jesus spoke these words, a generation. It was literally fulfilled. The, the gold that was plated on the outside of that temple melted because there was a great fire in Jerusalem. And the soldiers, greedy for that gold, tore the stones apart, getting to the gold. Literally, Jesus' statement was true. Not one stone 
was left standing upon another. Everything was torn down so they could get all the gold out from in between the cracks. So the first way that people have tried to find a different interpretation is they say it means this race. Well, the problem is, in, in the context, Jesus had said nothing about any race up until this point. He expected them to understand him, didn't he? When he said, this, this race will not pass away. Well, what race? The Jewish race? Well, he hasn't mentioned the Jewish race. In fact, he hasn't mentioned any race in this whole chapter up until that point. So it doesn't make sense in context to understand it of the race. Also, if you just take a look at the use of the word Ganea in the New Testament, uh, we don't have any, um, any examples of that particular usage. It means generation about 90% of the time, and then there's a few other times when you can translate it time or age. Well, others say, okay, it probably doesn't mean race, but maybe it means the generation that saw the fig tree bud. I know this is complicated this morning. You're going to have to really put your thinking caps on and, and track with me. You, you can't daydream this morning or you'll never follow this sermon. Okay? <laughs> but it, they say it means the generation that saw the fig tree bud. Now, if you go back to verse 29, it says, Jesus told him a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation, what generation? The generation that saw the fig tree bud, that saw the fig tree put forth leaves. Now, these interpreters believe that the fig tree represents Israel. And they say Israel budded or put forth its leaves in 1948. Because that's when Israel came back into Palestine and became a nation again. Um, this is Hal Lindsey's approach in the book, The Late Great Planet Earth, which is a bestseller. And Hal Lindsey and many other interpreters in that era believed that Jesus had to come back by 1988. Because if Israel became a nation in 1948, and a generation is 40 years, that would make the second coming of Christ by 1988. And they believed that Jesus was going to return secretly in a rapture seven years before that, which would make the rapture 1981. And there were people predicting that the rapture had to occur by 1981 because they interpreted the fig tree to be Israel. Does anyone see any flaws in this? He says, behold the fig tree and all the trees. Jesus wasn't making a point about the fig tree being representative of Israel. He's saying this is true of every tree, <laughs> not just the, the fig tree. The, the fig tree is not an exclusive symbol for the nation of Israel. He says, just look at all the trees. When a tree puts forth leaves, you say that summer is near, right? When, when our blossoms fall off of our tree and we see these little leaves coming out on our trees, well, they're gone now. But when, it, when they were out there, we would say, oh, it's springtime. Summer's right around the corner. That's all Jesus was saying here. And so he's saying, when you see the signs I've just outlined in this chapter, then you know that the rule and reign of God, the kingdom of God, is near. So, the fig tree being representative of Israel and the budding of the fig tree, meaning that uh, 1948 and then a generation from that, Christ has to come. That was a, it was a false interpretation. We got it wrong on that one. So if it doesn't mean this race, if it doesn't mean the generation that saw the fig tree bud, what does this generation mean? I believe it means the generation he was talking to. That's the natural, plain meaning of the text. I, I don't see any reason to go beyond that text because it literally did take place within a generation of Jesus saying these words. So that gives us a clue that when we come to Luke 21... We ought to be thinking destruction of Jerusalem. If there is something about the end of the world here, it's not Jesus' primary concern. His primary focus is on the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay, that's the first question. When will these things happen? Second question, what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? What's the sign? We have that answered for us in verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. What will be the sign 
when these things are near or about to take place, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. I believe there we have Jesus' answer to that question. Now, when you track Matthew 24 and Mark 13 with Luke 21, you'll notice that the very same order of events are shown you in those three places. Jesus talks about the persecution that his disciples are going to face. Then he talks about the abomination of desolation. Then he talks about how they had to flee to get out of the city. And woe to those who are nursing and those who are pregnant. Same order of events. Except in Luke, he doesn't mention the abomination of desolation, does he? He says, then those, excuse me, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. In Matthew and Mark, he says, but when you see the abomination of desolation. What does that tell you? Luke, who is Luke writing to? Anybody know? Jews or Gentiles? Okay. Okay. Matthew's definitely writing to Jews. Luke is primarily writing to Gentiles. He's writing to Theophilus, who was a Gentile um, nobleman of that particular day. When Matthew writes about the abomination of desolation, he knows that Hebrews, Jews, are going to understand that phrase because they know the Scriptures. It comes up three times in the book of Daniel. When Luke writes to Gentiles, they don't have this previous Hebrew Scripture background, so they don't know what the abomination of desolation is. So when Luke comes there, he paraphrases what the abomination of desolation is for Gentile readers. And he says, this is what it is. Jerusalem surrounded by armies. That's what the abomination of desolation is. Well, what is that all about? It's 70 AD. The Roman, uh, the Roman general Titus came into Jerusalem. His armies surrounded Jerusalem. They laid siege to the city. They start, tried to starve the people out, and they, they were effective. For three and a half years, they besieged the city, and then finally they came in and just demolished and wiped out and massacred everybody, burned the city, knocked all the stones down, and Israel as a nation in one particular location was no more. The priesthood was destroyed. Sacrifices stopped. This is a huge, huge thing in the history of God's redemptive purposes. Maybe you've never heard of 70 AD, but it's a huge event in the history of God's purposes. So according to Jesus, the abomination of desolation is when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. And he even uses the word desolation in verse 20. Now the word abomination, usually in Scripture, refers to idolatry. The word desolation means to be abandoned. The abomination of desolation means that God is abandoning the temple because of the idolatry of the people. When the Romans came into the temple waving their pagan banners, there was an abomination. Gentiles were not permitted in the temple. And remember what Jesus said at the end of Luke, or yeah, at the end of Luke, I'm sorry, Matthew 23. He said, behold, your house is left to you desolate. Now their house is talking about the temple. Your temple is being left to you desolate. He was referring to a time within his generation where the, te- the temple would be desolate. It would be wiped out. God is going to abandon that whole system. In fact, what's taking place is the parable of the vine growers all over again, which we studied not too many weeks ago. So there's the sign that Jesus is talking about. Now, many modern interpreters say that the abomination of desolation takes place uh, three and a half years before the second coming of Christ. They say it's happening at the end of the world. They believe that it's about the Antichrist setting up his image in the temple and commanding that all men worship that image. Um, The problem is that doesn't jive with Scripture. It doesn't jive with Luke uh, 21, verse 20, because Luke 21, verse 20 helps us understand what the abomination of desolation is. And there's nothing in this whole chapter about an antichrist. He does mention false Christs, but there's no single person singled out as the antichrist who sets up his image in a temple. Uh, This is localized to the first century. It's localized to the area of Jerusalem, and it's talking about Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. So I believe here Jesus answers their question. 
That's the two questions. There are Jesus' two answers. Now let's go back, starting in verse 8. And let's just go verse by verse, and let's look at the events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay, let's go back to verse 8. What are some of the signs that will lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem? Verse 8 says, See to it that you are not misled, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. Uh, In Mark chapter 13, verse 22, he says, False Christs and false prophets will arise and will mislead many. He even says, If it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. So here, one of the signs leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem is that you're going to have false Christs and false prophets. Well, was that true? Between the time that Jesus died and 40 years later, were there false Christs and false prophets? You bet there were. You bet there were. We read about some of them in the Bible. Acts chapter 13, verse 9 talks about this false prophet named Bar-Jesus who is leading this nobleman, Sergius Paulus, by the hand, and he's trying to get him away from the Apostle Paul so that he couldn't hear the gospel. We also find in the writings of Paul in 2 Timothy, uh, chapter 3, and verse 12. That's not what I want. Verse 13. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You're going to have impostors. Whoa. Who's an imposter? That would be someone who poses as someone that he's not. A false Christ. Someone posing to be the Christ who is not. He's going to deceive. He's going to be deceived. We also have in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17, Paul says, Their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. And they upset the faith of some. So here we have these false teachers, false prophets, Hymenaeus and Philetus. They said the resurrection's already happened. We also have in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Many antichrists have arisen. In John's day, many of them had already arisen. And on top of all that, you have the Judaizers who are teaching that you had to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses in order to be saved. You had all kinds of false teachers, false Christs, false prophets in the first century. All right, what's Jesus' second sign? Look at verse 9. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Wars and rumors of wars would be another sign. Now, he, he, notice he says the end does not follow immediately. When you start hearing about wars and disturbances, That's not the sign that it's about to happen. But it will have to happen before the end comes. Well, what about wars? Were there any wars that took place between AD 30 and AD 70? Yes, there were. In fact, from AD 60 on, there was constant friction between the Jewish people and the Romans. And starting in 66 AD, there was continual conflict and fighting culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The Roman historian Tacitus says this in his writings, The history on which I am entering is that of a period rich in disasters, terrible with battles, torn by civil struggles, horrible even in peace. Four emperors fell by the sword. There were three civil wars, more foreign wars, and often both at the same time. Wars and rumors of wars were taking place. Thirdly, natural catastrophes. Verse 11, there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So earthquakes. Were there any earthquakes going on in this period of time? Now, notice Jesus doesn't say there will be an increasing frequency of earthquakes. He just said there will be great earthquakes. Well, interestingly, in the book of Acts, Chapter 16, we have a record of one of those. Let me read it to you. Paul is in Philippi here. Verse 26 says, Suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. There is a great earthquake. 
And we know from Tacitus, he wrote about earthquakes in that period of time. He said there was a major earthquake in um, Laodicea, and there was the nearby city of Hierapolis and Colossae. Hierapolis and Colossae were destroyed and never rebuilt, but they did rebuild the ruins of Laodicea. So there were many earthquakes that were going on during this period of time. Then he goes on to talk about famines and plagues in various places. Any famines and plagues? We have one recorded in Acts chapter 11, verse 28. The prophet Agabus predicted that there would be a great famine over all the land. And then he says, this actually took place in the reign of Claudius. So yes, there were famines going on. And don't you know that when those Romans besieged Jerusalem and and laid siege to it so to starve them out, there was a terrible, terrible famine. Hundreds of thousands of people starved to death. In fact, some parents were actually, this is horrible to talk about, but they actually cooked and ate their children just to survive. That's what was going on in this time. And then when the people were so weak and so sickly because of this, this siege, then the Romans just kicked through the uh, the entrance to the to Jerusalem, and they it was easy to overpower all the people, and they killed them all. So there were famines, and whenever there's a famine, plagues follow it. There were also great signs from heaven. Now we would not know about this if it weren't for a historian, a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. He writes now he didn't know anything about what Jesus spoke here, but he writes about great signs from heaven. Listen to this. He writes about a star in the shape of a sword that hung over Jerusalem for a whole year. Then he said, on another occasion, many people looked up and they saw soldiers in armor running about in the clouds. Now, of course, this is bizarre, isn't it? (laughs) We think, what was he smoking that day? I mean, (laughs) soldiers running around in the clouds? And he even says, I know this is going to be unbelievable to you, but this is what people actually saw. I I say that could be the great signs from the heavens that Jesus was talking about. And then there's a great lengthy description here from 12 to 19 about persecutions that are going to come upon Jesus' disciples. Now we know this took place. Just read the book of Acts. Starting in chapter 3 through the end of the book, the people of God are persecuted constantly. Notice in verse 12 it says, they will deliver you to the synagogues. So this is Jewish persecution. And that's where the persecution started. Not from the Romans, but from the Jews. Paul was persecuted by the Jews in city after city. He says that they will deliver you to the synagogues and prisons. They'll bring you before kings and governors for my name's sake. Do you remember? Paul was brought before King Agrippa. He was brought before the governors Felix and Festus. This literally came true in the experience of the Apostle Paul. And then he says, it'll lead an opportunity for your testimony. Make up your minds not to prepare beforehand. I'm going to give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. You're going to be betrayed by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. They're going to put some of you to death. You'll be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. Isn't that interesting? How could you be put to death but not a hair of your head perish? Those two don't go together, do they? I think what Jesus is saying, yes, some of you will be put to death, some of you will be martyrs, but your soul will be safe. They can kill your body, they can't kill your soul. Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your life is hid with Christ in God. He's trying to get that truth across to these disciples don't worry not a hair of your head is going to perish you are safe in my hands and then he says in verse 19 by by your endurance you will gain your lives this is parallel to Jesus' statement in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 he who endures to the end shall be saved Luke just says it a little different by your endurance persevering to the end you'll gain your lives he who endures to the end shall be saved So there we have these persecutions, four major signs, false Christs and false prophets, wars and disturbances, natural catastrophes, and persecutions. But then, starting in verse 20, we come to this fourth section, the destruction of Jerusalem. 
But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea, Judea was the area right around Jerusalem. Those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. Did you know that Jesus' disciples obeyed his words in verse 21, and they were saved? They saw the approach of the Romans coming, and they remembered Jesus' words that when you see this happening, flee. And they got out of Jerusalem, and they were, they were saved. But those who stayed within the city walls of Jerusalem all died. Verse 22, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Days of vengeance? Whose vengeance? God's vengeance. God's vengeance. Do you remember the parable of the vine growers? where the owner of the vineyard sent some of his slaves to receive the fruit. They beat him up, sent him away empty-handed. And finally, after doing that two or three times, he sends his son, and they said, let us kill him. The vineyard will become ours. And then Jesus says, what will the owner do to those wicked men? They said, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end. That's what we have going on here in Luke chapter 21. It's days of vengeance. They shamefully treated the prophets. They stoned them. Some they sawed in two. They persecuted God's prophets. And then when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came, they murdered him. And it's over for the nation Israel. God's bringing judgment. God's bringing vengeance upon this nation. And the end of verse 22 is interesting. So that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Did you know that there are many... Old Testament prophecies that speak about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Jesus said, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. In other words, we should not be surprised when we're reading our Old Testament to find predictions concerning this cataclysmic, horrific event in Israel's history because they're tucked away in the prophets. Verse 23, Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. Notice two things there. The land and this people. What does the land refer to? Yeah, yeah, the land the land of uh, Jerusalem, the land right around there. He's not talking about um, there will be great distress upon the entire world. He's talking about this land. It's localized, it's specific to Jerusalem and the environs around it. And this people, not every person in the world, but this people. What what people? The Jews, the Jewish nation. Do you, do you see that? And he's saying, woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies because it's going to be very difficult for you to make this flight and to get out of Jerusalem with those babies that you have to care for. Verse 24. And they will fall by the edge of the sword. That's what happened in 70 AD. The Jews were killed by the sword. And they will be led captive into all the nations. That happened literally, right? The Jews spread out all over the world. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Okay. That brings us to verses 25 to 28. And verses 25 to 28 are... There are two ways you can go in trying to interpret this passage. I think both ways are acceptable. I don't, I'm not sure what the correct one is. I'll just present both of them and you can try to determine yourself. The first one is that Jesus is just continuing to describe the, the destruction of Jerusalem. He's still talking about 70 AD. Let me read it. And at first you're going to say, Brian, you're crazy. It couldn't be talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. But let me explain. Don't <laughs> give me a chance here. There will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectations of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, if we just take that at face value, 
and interpret that literally, that sounds like the end of the world, doesn't it? I'll grant you that. And it might be. He might be talking about the end of the world. But it's not necessary that we interpret it that way. And the reason why is because this is apocalyptic literature. The Jews were familiar with a certain kind of scripture that was called apocalyptic. Whenever God was about to overthrow a nation, he used this very same kind of language about the moon turning to blood, the stars falling from the sky, the sun ceasing to shine. Let me show you some. Don't take my word for this. Go back in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 13. Okay, in Isaiah chapter 13, we have described God's judgment upon ancient Babylon. Look at what he says in Isaiah 13, 9 and 10. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Does that sound familiar to you? That's almost lifted right out of Isaiah, and Jesus quotes it in Matthew 24. Same kind of language. But this is talking about Babylon being judged by God in the Old Testament. This has already happened. Now, this was not intended to be taken literally, like the sun, you'll never see the sun again. Its light will always be gone. This was meant to be understood as this cataclysmic event the, the great nation of Babylon was going to be judged and destroyed, and so it's like the, the lights going out over that nation, that city. Okay, let's look at another one. Isaiah chapter 34. And, and also, the uh, just to let you know, the word world can be translated as earth or land. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I got confused. The word for land can also be translated as earth. It's the Greek word gay. So when Jesus talks about land or earth, those are, are possible translations from the same Greek word. It can go either way depending on the context. Okay, Isaiah 34. Verse 4. And all the host of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll, all their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as the one withers from the fig tree. For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. So here you have God's judgment and destruction of the ancient nation of Edom. He describes it as all the stars in the sky or the sky being rolled up like a scroll and the stars... Where does he say that here? All the host of heaven wearing away, the, scry, the sky being rolled up like a scroll. So this didn't literally happen in the Old Testament, but it was a figurative expression of God's judgment coming upon that nation. Okay, look at another one, Ezekiel 32. Here we have God's judgment upon Egypt. Ezekiel 32, verse 7 and 8. And when I extinguish you... I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you and will set darkness on your land, declares the Lord your God. And this is a reference to God's uh, destruction of Egypt. You've got three references, God's destruction in three different places. He describes it in the same language each time, which leads some expositors to believe that when you come to Luke 21, verses 25 to 28, Jesus is using that same kind of language to describe the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, of course, if you take it that way, then verse 27 says, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That's not something you could take literally because they didn't literally see Jesus in 70 AD. But those who interpret it figuratively the way they understand that is they would see Jesus coming in judgment, not literally with their eyes, but they would see the effects of him coming in judgment upon Israel to destroy it. So it could be describing the destruction of Jerusalem, but it also could be describing the second coming of Christ. You say, Brian, why would you think that? You've been saying all along, this is talking about 70 AD. 
Well, it's because in verse 24, Jesus mentioned the times of the Gentiles. Jerusalem will, will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, he doesn't tell us what the times of the Gentiles are, so we are left to, to try to understand that. Um, my own understanding is that that's the time when God is dealing primarily with the Gentiles. Up until 70 AD, it appears God was working primarily with the Jewish people. After the destruction of Jerusalem, there was this worldwide Gentile evangelistic um, effort that went forth through all the world, and the Gentiles are being called out into the kingdom. And so there's the times of the Gentiles. Well, the times of the Gentiles lead all the way up until the end of the world, and Jesus' second coming. So it could make sense that starting in verse 25, Jesus is simply talking about the next thing that's going to happen after the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And I think that's an acceptable way of looking at this passage. I don't see anything that would uh, say that we could not look at it that way. And then you're at liberty to take this more literally. They actually seeing in a cloud the Son of Man coming with power and great glory. So I would say both of those are acceptable in my understanding, in, in my view. Some want to take almost the entirety of the chapter to be talking about the end of the world. Uh, I could see verses 25 to 28 being, being mentioned of that period of time. Okay, but looking, picking up now in verse 29. Then he told them a parable. Behold, the fig tree and all the trees, as soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that uh, that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is talking about the rule and reign of God. So some would interpret this as meaning a future millennial reign of Jesus on the earth. That's near. But in my understanding, I think he's going back to the destruction of Jerusalem again in verse 29 because he's talking about the generation not passing away until all of these things take place. So I think what he's talking about is, in verse 31, when you see all these things happening, recognize that God's rule and God's reign is near. God is bringing to pass his purposes, and one of those purposes is the destruction of his ungodly people, the apostate nation of uh, Israel, and he is doing this, this work of judgment. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Incidentally, who, can you imagine any person today saying that? Hey guys, this is Brian Anderson talking to you. Hey, heaven and earth will pass away one day, but my words, they're never going to pass away. You'd think I was crazy, wouldn't you? The fact that Jesus could even say that shows his deity. Nobody else but God can make a statement like that. And now he gives him this um, exhortation in verses 34 to 36. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day, I believe he's talking about the same day, the day of Jerusalem falling to her enemies, and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. Now here's where I wanted to use the Greek word gay. The word earth there could also be translated land. The context determines how you would translate that, that word. And since Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, it makes sense to me that he's talking about the face of all the land, the land that is under judgment on that particular day. Others see it differently. They think it has a reference to a great tribulation at the end of the world history. You, you're going to have to decide what you think he's talking about. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So be on your guard. Be disciplined. Don't get into carousing or drunkenness or dissipation. Don't let the worries of life overtake you. You need to be remembering who you are and who Christ is. You need to be on your guard against that day coming. You don't want it to come upon you suddenly like a trap so that you can't escape. And I believe he's talking about to believers who happen to be Jews who lived within the vicinity of Jerusalem. He says, you guys don't let down your game. Don't start carousing with unbelieving Jews that live in your city so that that day comes upon you like a trap and you're stuck there and you're, you're within the city walls and the Romans are outside and you can't get out and you're being starved to death. In other words, keep on the alert and pray that you can escape all these things and to stand before the Son of Man. In other words, not fall in the judgment, but stand before Him as you now are. 
And then there's a reference that during the day he was teaching in the temple, but at the evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet, and all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. Let me just make a couple of applications. Number one, God knows everything that's going to come to pass. You say, well, of course he does. I mean, that's a no-brainer, right? God is God. God knows everything. Well, not so fast. <laughs> There's a new theology that was introduced in about the year 1980 called open theism. Anybody ever heard of that? Open theism teaches that God does not know all the future because God has created his creatures with free will. And so since they're completely free, even God cannot know what their free choices are going to be until they happen. So God doesn't know the future. Now, here it seems to me Jesus did know with minute exactness things that were going to happen around uh, Jerusalem in the next 40 years after he died. And I think this points to the fact that God is omniscient. God knows the details of the future. But how can God know that? My answer is that God knows it because God has ordained it. And Ephesians 1.11, I'm going to show you a couple of verses that point me in this direction. Ephesians 1.11 says, that we have been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. God is working all things after the counsel of his own will, according to Ephesians 1.11. Or if we were to take a look at Isaiah 46. Okay, so Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Now here God is saying that from ancient times I can predict what's going to happen. I, I can declare the end from the beginning. I can declare the things which have not been done. I can, and the reason I can do that is because those things are my purpose and they are my pleasure. See that? So the, my conviction based on pa passages like this is that God knows everything because God has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Now, not all Christians believe that. Some do, some don't. That's my own conviction. So folks, we don't have to be terrified at this world. We don't have to be terrified. God is still on the throne. God is still in control. God is still ruling the universe. God is sovereign in spite of the chaos that goes on around us, and there's a lot of it. There are rapes. There are murders. There is all kinds of sin and debauchery that's going on. But that doesn't mean that God is not ruling and that God has not ordained the end and that he's not moving all things towards his predetermined purpose. I think that would give us great confidence and comfort if we knew that we could trust God and know that God is sovereign in all these things. The second application, God will bring judgment upon those who reject his son. God will bring judgment upon those who reject his son. Now, why this judgment? Look at Luke chapter 19, verse 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. That's what we're reading about here in Luke 21. Jerusalem surrounded by armies. They will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. God visited his creatures in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. They didn't recognize that. They spurned the son of God. They had him executed. They hated him and wanted him dead and actually did kill him. And God's judgment then is coming upon Jerusalem. One Now, here's the question I had. If this is what's going to happen when God judges a city, how fearful is it going to be when God judges the whole world? You know, think about that. And that is what will take place one day, on Judgment Day. Israel was judged for rejecting Christ. One day the whole world's going to be judged for rejecting Christ. And so that ought to cause us, folks, to serve the Lord while we can with the remaining time we have left with zeal, 
serve him with all of our hearts. Jude talks about plucking people like brands from the fire. Uh, do what we can to serve the Lord because it's all going to burn one day. And don't get so attached to the material things of this world. The only thing that's going to survive are people and the Word of God. Let's be committed to those two things, souls and the truth of the Word of God. Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this, this chapter, which is difficult. We acknowledge that. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us as we seek to use our minds the best we can to understand what you've communicated. I pray that you would give a, a sense of comfort to those who are here today in spite of the, the terrible things going on in the world, that we have a sovereign God. Not a hair of our head will perish even if we're killed. And Lord, help us to be busily engaged in preaching and witnessing and sharing the gospel to those who are lost while there is still time. In Jesus' name, amen.